it is another episode of Hope Rising. I don't know about you, but I am getting to this place where I am starting to really look forward to each and every episode, not just because we keep meeting fascinating people, people who are accomplished, people who have a story, but there's something that every time I have these conversations, like my soul gets lifted, um, my focus gets heightened, my awareness goes to a place where I think to myself, self, where can we go next if I just have another episode and another great conversation? Today is is not going to leave you in lack of that, um, because this guy that I'm bringing on, his story is so fascinating. Um, he is an author uh, of a book that literally just came out that you guys have to hear about, and the story that led him to writing it, um, the story of his life and his journey, is one that will not only inspire you, but I think what really you're going to get out of this week is an understanding that sometimes in life you have to pivot. Sometimes in life, you start a career, you start a journey, um, it, it, it fine-tunes you, it hones you, it trains you, it cultivates you. Then what you find over time is that you need to then pivot again, learn more, add more to your arsenal to go to the next level that God wants to take you to. And so this, this guest that I have this week, his name is Scott Harvey. And what I love about Scott, he's going to tell you about. Like, when you start to hear the way he talks and the way that he sees life, you'll just get it. So I think I've probably already said too much. Hopefully I didn't bore everybody. So Scott, I want to go ahead and just welcome you on to Hope Rising. Thank you very much. It's my my honor to be here. I'm super excited about this conversation. Absolutely. Uh, you know, Scott, we had a chance to, to chit-chat a little bit on, on Facebook in the weeks that led up to this interview. And... <clears throat> One of the things that I love about you is that you are a man of focus, intense focus, and there's a reason for that. So, so could you tell everybody a little bit about your background and, and you know, tell everybody about your new book too. Let's just start there. Who are you? How did you get this way of who, being who you are? And then we'll just go from there. Ah, uh, man. Who am I? Well, you know, first and foremost, I'm a follower of Jesus. I don't apologize for that. I'm a husband of over 25 years. I'm a dad to two daughters. Those are the kind of the, the hats that I wear in that order. But mm -hmm. I'm also an author, as you mentioned. I'm a professional speaker. I've spoken on hundreds of thousands of stages in front of hundreds of thousands of people. And I just feel like I have a message to share. And that message mm -hmm. was honed out of over 20 years in law enforcement. Because when I got into police work way back in 1998, yes, I'm that old. I got into police work back <laughs> in 1998, and I wanted to serve. I wanted to make the world a safer, better place. And I got into law enforcement, and I got into law enforcement for that purpose, but I found out it was more difficult than I had anticipated. I had never thought of law enforcement being the cleanup business, but that's what we People call us when there's a bad day, when there's a tragedy, when there's something, and we come in and all the king's horses and all the king's men try to put Humpty Dumpty back together. And I didn't like that. So I got involved very early on in the D.A.R.E. program. I started going into schools and teaching fifth graders and seventh graders better decision making so that they can make better choices so that we would have less cleanup later on and they would live more productive lives. So my career pivoted very early on into prevention focused stuff. And in that, I also got involved in our hostage negotiation team. So I was trained through the FBI that whenever there was a crisis, we were responding with the SWAT team and we were maintaining or we were establishing contact with whoever was on the inside. And in that contact, it was our job to establish rapport and try to negotiate a peaceful resolution to this situation so that their bad situation didn't get worse. I loved being a negotiator because it was a mental chess match. It was a way to get somebody to do what I needed them to do, but make them believe it was their idea. And that was what we did as negotiators. And I got good at it. And then I started doing public information officer stuff, talking to the media. All this to say, Maurice, I spent the last two thirds of my career easily communicating for a living. I was teaching DARE, I was a negotiator, I was a public information officer. I was doing all of this. And around 2010, I had a friend of mine who was organizing a conference say, hey, I had one of my conference people back out. This was a DARE conference that I attended every year, state DARE mm -hmm. conference. Mm -hmm. She goes, do you have anything you can speak about in a month or two? I'm like, well, I was researching bullying at the time because it was a big buzzword in 2010. I said, 
I could probably do a bullying presentation. She goes, if you do that, you'd save me a bunch of hassle. I would appreciate it. So I did that breakout session, Maurice. And the people that were in that session were principals and superintendents. And, and they asked me afterwards, they're like, would you come train our teachers? We would love mm. to do this. I said, well, yeah, you'd have to pay for my gas. Like, I didn't know how this works. Like, cover <laughs> my expenses and, and I'm there. And when I went to the school and trained their staff, their staff was like, you need to come back and teach our students. You need to do an assembly and teach our students. So... 2010 is when I started speaking professionally. And uh, I knew at the time that I was on a 20-year hazardous duty retirement. So I knew at 2018, I could retire. So I thought, what if this became the retirement gig? What if I just spoke and taught and helped people and served people for the next eight years using vacation time from the police department until I got this ship close enough to the dock in 2018 that I could step onto it and take off on the next career? So that's kind of how I got to where I am today. I uh, hope that kind of fills in some of the blanks for you. Sure, absolutely. And, you know, it seems in, in a lot of ways like poetic justice to me that your most recent pivot is to becoming an author, right? Mm -hmm. Because what I just heard was that you really learned about the power of words to lead to the power of prevention, right? Yes. Um, the intentionality of how you approached not only, um, you know, those 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 young, you know, teens and, and kids that you were speaking to, but then pivoting to speaking to the teachers, as well as speaking to the people in those hostage situations, mm. the power of words really being a catalyst to change. Yeah. What do you think you've really learned in, in the last, you know, in, in these last years of your life about the power of words in communication? I think that's a great question. I, <laughs> I am one of those people who picks apart words because words get to a deeper meaning. When somebody mm -hmm. says something, there's a reason they said that. Mm -hmm. I mean, to this day, Maurice, and, and I look back and I see God's fingerprints all over my life. My favorite movie is Dead Poets Society. Because in that movie, Robin Williams showed what words can do to motivate and inspire and call people to their best life. And I showed that movie a couple years ago to my wife and my two teenage daughters at the time. And they were like, meh. I'm like, how do you not believe that's the best movie ever? And my wife's like, I think it's a boy coming of age movie. And I'm like, I get that. But I, the power of words to me are everything. Uh, you know, if we go way back, God spoke the world into existence. And so words in themselves have power. He changed people's names. He called people differently. Uh, for me, when I'm a negotiator or when I'm talking to somebody, I am really, really listening for the words that they choose. Because one, as a negotiator, I will try to mirror back to them some of those words so that we can establish rapport relatively quickly. But then I will make a note of words that they don't like, you know, things they don't like to talk about because I don't want to unnecessarily upset them. So we mm -hmm. keep a record of things we don't want to discuss. And then we start kind of dissecting their words to get to how we got to where we are today. Mm. That helps us kind of see... How do we get them out of this in a way that they save face, that they can maybe stop the damage that's being done actively by what they're engaged in? I, I've made my living with words. I still make my living with words today. And I believe that words change people. Mm, they change people. They change atmospheres they change situations words do so much yeah. and you know i love that you made that that god reference right because you know in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god right yeah. and so when you when you learn how to pay attention to words one thing i've said many times is i've sat in front of rooms full of people um and i have listened to the words people chose to use and also to avoid mm. and many times when when i have felt like god has kind of showed me mm, this is what this individual needs to have a change or a transformation. And mm -hmm. the tears begin to flow and they say, how did you know? You told me. Right. Yes. <laughs> you told me everything I needed to know. Yes. It's just that people don't often listen to the words we use. That's right. I tell people when we would have people apply for an open hostage negotiator position and we had people retire or leave the team or whatever, always officers would come in and say things like, well, I'm a really good talker. Like I can sell people on, I, I can talk my way out of this and that. I'm like, well, that's great. But I've never talked somebody into doing something, mm. but I have listened them into doing something. Ooh, say that one more time. I, I've never talked somebody into doing something, but I have listened them into doing something, which is exactly your 
point, Maurice. They will tell you what you need. You've just got to be able to hear it. And then you've got to kind of on your feet think, how do I leverage this to help them? Because it sounds like manipulation to say, I'm mirroring to them, I'm using their language, I'm trying to get them to do what I want. But ultimately, Maurice, that was easy because what I wanted was for them to be safe, for the mm -hmm. hostages to be safe, and for my officers to be safe. Mm -hmm. And if I could get them to that conclusion and make them think that's their idea, then I don't feel like that's manipulation at all. I feel like that's in their in their crisis, they can't see that resolution I can from mm -hmm. the outside looking in. And so steering them to that resolution by listening to what they've said throughout the whole conversation, and these will go on for hours, mm. what they're saying, listening to that gets me to the conclusion I need them to be at. Mm. I hope you guys are already hearing why I thought Scott's message was so important. And we'll talk a little bit later about his his new book. But the reality is, you know, how many of you that are CEOs, business owners, um, uh, administrators need to, to listen more to what the people who are who you're trying to move in a direction, the power of listening versus the power of threats. Um, you know, we talked about manipulation. I've known a lot of leaders who feel that the only way that you can move the needle is to manipulate the needle. Well, the truth is that manipulation and cultivation both require you putting your hands on the thing and getting your hands dirty. But do you come out of it clean or do you come out of it more messy is the key, right? And what I'm trying to do is to cultivate, to listen to people, to to understand that, yes, I'm going to have to to be a part of the solution. But am I part of the solution where I come out feeling gross and disgusting because mm -hmm. I'm because I'm really just doing things that aren't right and are immoral? Or am I a part of the solution where I'm listening to you? I'm listening to your words. And in some ways, I'm then acting as a mirror to show you you so that in the end you get what you really want mm -hmm. not what you think you want yeah and that sometimes is the key yeah yeah that's huge you know you we helping people be the best version of themselves that's almost cliche today but that's what it's about mm -hmm. whether you're negotiating whether you're teaching whether you're speaking calling somebody to a better version of themselves Mm. So, so let's talk about your journey to becoming, you know, a, the best version of you. Mm -hmm. So did you, did you always want to become an officer, you know, as a kid, like how, how what did little Scott want? And, <laughs> and what was the journey that, that kind of took you there? And, and as you tell that story, is there, is there a moment that you can think of that really um, forged your character or, or forged, um, um, you know, who you have become in a way in your childhood, in your teenage years? Is there a moment that you think of in that part of the journey? Uh, as long as I can remember, I wanted to be a police officer. Uh, it was just one of those things. My older brother was a volunteer firefighter from the time he was like 18 years old. He's two and a half years older than me. I thought this would be a cool, you know, public service type thing. So I always wanted to be a police officer, but I also remember in middle school when the people came in and did the school assemblies and I would sit there and I'm like, that is a cool job. Like I would love to have that job. But at the time, I didn't have any stories. Like I didn't have any content. I was just like a middle school, high school kid, just thinking that's a pretty cool job. Like when I watch Michael Jordan play ball, I'm like, that's a great job. I don't play ball. Like I can't dunk. I'm not <laughs> Michael Jordan, but that's a cool job. And, and, you know, I feel like at the time, looking back on it now, I feel like God kind of pulled back the curtain. It was like, this is what I have for you, but it's going to take a minute to get there. Because what I did over my time at the police department is I developed proven tactics that work. The communication strategies that I teach corporations today, they work. They work in a hostage negotiation, high stress, high crisis environment. They're going to work with your coworkers. They're going to work with your family. They just work. So I developed that and I developed stories. Uh, Maurice, we have taught principles with stories since before there was written word. Of course. Long before we were writing on cave walls, we were passing on stories parables, because we wanted to teach a principle in a way that people would remember it. And so in my job at the police department, I just collected stories. And now in the world of social media, I am collecting potential tweets, potential posts, potential Instagram posts. And I tell my wife, I said, I put them in my brain, I roll them around like a rock tumbler. 
Uh, and sometimes they get polished enough to where I feel like I can share them. Sometimes they just get kicked out. That's just mm -hmm. not a thing that I need to be discussing. But mm -hmm. I just, over my time, you know, it, it took 30 years from the time I was in middle school to when I was on my first stage, close to it, 25 plus years. And in that time, I didn't realize I was waiting. I just had been, you know, you see your life in the rearview mirror and you realize this was kind of a, a vision of what I could do if I applied myself to it. And so, you know, that's, that's what I do today. And I love being on a stage. That's not work for me. That's playtime. Uh, the, the booking, the travel, the billing, all of that stuff. That's the work that allows me to play for an hour or two at a time on a stage in front of thousands of people. Mm. What a fascinating concept. And, you know, it's interesting that I've had so many different types of guests, um, even at, you know, in the beginning of this first season. And one of the things that I'm noting is that I continue to have what I call storytellers. Okay, that there is something about people who inspire others and motivate others where God seems to make them people who are great storytellers. If we if we talk about your time, um, you know, with with the police department, mm -hmm. you begin to see the ends of stories as they play out far too often is what you described. Right. Right. And so then you then you say, well, how do I become a part of, of earlier becoming earlier in the narrative? Mm -hmm. And you begin to teach people the possibilities of where their story can go. We all remember, choose your adventure, right? Yes. And then when you pivot away from there, now you are meeting a person in the worst chapter of their story, but you're letting them know the story doesn't have to end today. Mm -hmm. And so there, it is as though God has, has purposely let you understand how important your ink is inside of a book. Mm. You personally, you are letting a person know you still have blood in your in, in your body. You still have air that is moving through your lungs. You have a say in where the story goes. Yeah. The question is, will you take advantage of what God is trying to do with you right now? Yeah. Do, do, do you always see how pivotal important that moment is, even today as you stand on these stages in front of corporations and all these individuals? I would love to say always. Uh, I I don't always do anything. You know, I, I do my best, but yeah. there are times for sure where where you almost feel bad cashing the check. Like mm. I have to support my family and stuff, but mm. I would a hundred percent speak from stage for free. Yeah. It's that much fun for me. So yes, I, I do understand how amazing this is. I love what I get to do. Uh, I love motivating people and moving people. But, you know, my challenge with the speaking, one of the reasons I, I kind of pivoted to the book is the best illustration I can give you for being a public speaker is it's like building a sandcastle. Mm. Like you labor and you create and you build this amazing, beautiful structure and you stand back and you admire it. And as soon as you walk away, the tide comes in and starts washing away your work. You know, I stand on stage and I speak and I give principles and I give tactics that are going to help people. And then they go to sleep and the tide has come in and washed some of that away. Mm -hmm. They don't remember it quite as much. They just remember it was kind of a cool thing. So one of the things I always try to remember is, is the Maya Angelou quote that people won't understand, people won't remember what you said, but they'll never forget how you made them feel. That's it. So when I'm speaking, I am always trying to elicit an emotion from my audience because that's my best chance of you remembering what we talked about. Once again, it sounds manipulative, but if what I believe I'm telling you can change your life or make your life better, why would I want you to forget it? Why would I not craft it in a way that the story elicits emotions from you that make you hold on to that principle longer? Mm. So... So what is, let's talk a little bit about emotions, okay. because I've seen people speak to emotions in a way that is dangerous, and I've seen people speak to emotions in a way that is transformational and transcendent. Yes. And so how do we know the difference? Because I'm, I'm like you, okay? Um, one thing that I've said is I am not the greatest speaker in the world, but when I speak, you're going to feel me. Yes. <laughs> Especially yeah. if if you're the person that God has me here to speak to, there's yes. going to be something that resonates with my words that is just different. Yeah. What is it about emotions and how do we learn how to interact with emotions in the healthiest way possible to have transformation? So any good thing can be manipulated and can be abused and can become a bad thing. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, 
I carried a gun for 20 years. I never shot anybody. I never had a reason to. I had it out on more than one occasion. But my gun never killed anybody. It never stopped anybody. It was a tool that I used. I could have used that gun to hurt people, to abuse people, to scare people. It's a tool. Story is a tool. Story can be used to hurt people or it can be used to help people. You know, I think of of the the parents who are the travel agents for guilt trips and who just use story and I've slaved all day and this is the things I get at home. And like, I understand that a little bit as a parent. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Wait, did you say the travel agents Tra- for guilt travel trips? Travel agents for guilt trips, man. <laughs> I, I used to deal with these parents at the police department. Like I would deal with their kids, which would bring them into my orbit. And like, oh, I, man. I would want to push Junior out of the room and just talk to mom and dad and be like, right. you are why we're here. You understand that, right? You know, we mm. parents would call us and, and I got a call one time as a police officer for an out of control six-year-old. They called the police. So I showed up and they want me to scare Junior. They want me to threaten Junior. I just told Junior to go out and play with his brother and brother and sister. I talked to mom and dad. I said, if you don't get this under control today, mm-hmm. when they're 16, you won't be able to control them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're like, well, I, you know, they don't listen to me. I'm like, because you don't make them listen to you. You, you have to, your, your words need to have weight. They need to have value. But the toxic parents are the ones who will make you feel guilty over everything. And they mm. will use story. They will use your life experiences. They will use what they know about you to manipulate you to a point where you end up doing things you wouldn't want to do just because of the guilt that they've racked onto you. So story can be used to help people. It can be used to hurt people. It's just a tool. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when I teach these practices to people, sometimes I tell them, you have to be careful with this because you can use this for evil or you can use it for good. I mean, I mm-hmm. grew up watching Star Wars. I, I hate to admit this. I, I saw the original three. Uh-huh. And then I kind of <laughs> fell off the map. So I'm way back in Star Wars, Return of the Jedi, you know, Empire Strikes Back. Those are the ones that I know. And mm-hmm. you just see the force. It's just a, a thing that people either use for good or they use for evil. Mm, that is so good. And I thought that was important to talk about <clears throat> because even if you talk about parenting, there was one parent that listened to what you just said and shook their head and said, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And there was another one who listened and said, what are you talking about? If that's what I have to say to move the needle, then that's what I have to say to move the needle. And I think I would also liken that to entrepreneurs, to to business people who have a, a team of individuals who are they're responsible for, people mm-hmm. who are relying on them and they're relying on each other to make sure we hit the mark, to make sure that we're making money, that the company mm-hmm. stays afloat and stays mm-hmm. functional. What do you say to those people who say, look, I have to do to use guilt trips and do those types of tactics in order to, to get things done and to stay in business? I, I would say then they're they're taking the easy way out, the short term easy. You you can guilt somebody into doing something, and they'll do it, but they'll also be looking for their next job at the same time. Like they'll do it to get you off their back, but they're not going to feel valued. They're not going to feel like they matter. They're not going to feel appreciated. So it'll it's a short term play. You can use guilt for short term, but if you want to build long term legacy lasting relationships, guilt is not the way you do it. And, you know, I I was hard on parents a minute ago. Like my kids are 22 and 18 right now. Like my prayer is I make enough money to pay for their therapy, you know, because (laughs) I did the best I could. I've never been a parent before. Like I've messed some things up before, but there's no such thing as a perfect parent. There's no such thing as a perfect boss. But I will tell you the times that I did better as a parent was the times when I would pull them aside and say, you know, I didn't handle that the way I should have. And I'm sorry. I should not have yelled. I should not have lost. I should have listened to you. And I'm sorry. And then the real challenge, and this is whether you're a parent or a boss, the real challenge is to stop before you say the but. I'm sorry that I yelled at you, but you were acting a fool, right? That's mm-hmm. not an apology. Like, it's not. The apology is, I'm so sorry I yelled at you, and I'm going to do my best to make sure it never happens again. Mm-hmm. It is. It's so fascinating that um, God has has placed us together. Um, <clears throat> because I just wrote a book called "Your Butt Is Too Big," mm-hmm. um, and the entire purpose of it is teaching long term transformation versus short term change. Exactly what you were just talking about. Yes. And what you find is that most people are looking for the fastest way to get relief out of a situation, and generally that keeps you in the cycle of the situation. 
What you really need is to find long-term solutions. And we find those through accountability, right? Through, through me acknowledging who I am, who you are, and what it, what we have this in front of us. I'm not going to get it perfect. I'm not always going to get it right. However, we have the ability to, to do the best we can right now imperfectly. And so what we can do is we can acknowledge the truth of the situation. We can acknowledge the possibilities and options within the situation, tough as they might be. And then we can go through the, the, the tough work of cultivating something new. I love that word cultivation. Mm -hmm. So, so one of the things that you teach so many different types of people right now is the art of communication. And yet one thing that we know for sure is that it's the words that don't get spoken that have the greatest impact on situations and individuals. Mm -hmm. You you have just released uh, as of, as of not while, while filming, you haven't actually released it while we're filming, but by the time everybody's listening to this episode, you have now released your new book called Silence Kills. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us a little bit about what inspired the book? Tell us a little bit about the pivot. I know you were writing something totally different before that. So tell, take us on that journey and why is it that silence kills? I wrote this book because as a police officer, as I told you, one of my jobs was a public information officer. So I was talking to the media constantly. I was doing press releases. I was doing interviews. I was telling the story of whatever we did at the police department to the public. And we would communicate through any situation. And what bothered me as I got kind of out of the police world and into corporate America is that when things hit the fan in corporate America, they tend to shut down communication. They're the king mm. of the no comment, the queen of the no comment. They just, the media shows up and they say no comment. And the problem is that, that creates a vacuum that doesn't kill the story. It just forces the media or your employees, maybe it's not the media, maybe your employees know something is up and nobody's talking about it. It forces them to fill the vacuum. That's it. They'll go and get the story from somebody who doesn't even know what's happening. And that story will get beyond your control. And here's the, what I've learned is our imaginations are way more creative than what the actual problem is. One million percent. You know, I'll say this. I just want to jump in. Yeah. That's the same situation in marriages and in relationships, right? Yes. I, I've told so many people, when when I don't speak, my wife then figures out all of the things she thinks I'm thinking about. Yes. Right? <laughs> Your yes. imagination will fill that vacuum and fill that space yep. with its own narrative. Yep. So you tell the story or they tell the story. And then the brain has to be right as a survival mechanism. So their brain, our brain will look for all of the things that reinforce what we believe to be true. Mm-hmm. And we won't even notice the things that show what we believe is actually false. Absolutely. And so we will come to this conclusion and then confirmation bias kicks in and we will find all of the things that Aha. make that the only logical solution. That's it. And then when they explain to us what happened, we almost feel like they're covering up because we're so far off from where they thought, from where we thought they were. Mm-hmm. They're in such a different area. We're like, there's no way that's possible because <laughs> of this, 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 and this that I've kept score in my head. That, I, that I've uncovered through my secret agent work, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes. And, and what bothers me even more, Maurice, even outside of the, the corporate world, is we're living in a world who is telling us what we can and can't talk about. Mm. And they're just deciding that these, because the cancel culture world that we find ourselves in today, and this has been going on for a long time, like we've been trying to erase history for a long, long time. Come on. But, But we live in a world that says you can't talk about mental health. Mm. You can't talk about race relations. Mm -hmm. You can't talk about these things because you might offend somebody. Come on. And what I find is my silence, or the more I try to tap dance around a sensitive topic, the more Mm -hmm. offensive I become. Because I'm trying to spare feelings, because I don't want to, I genuinely don't want to hurt people. But if I tap dance around it or I ignore it altogether, that's more hurtful than if I were to say the wrong thing. Because silence communicates apathy almost every time. The thing Mm. I say in my presentations, the thing I say in the book is silence without rapport feels like we don't care every time. 
This is why my wife and I have been married for 25 years, can be on a road trip for hours in the car, and we can go for an hour and neither one of us says a word and the other one doesn't think they're mad because we have thousands and thousands of hours of communication. We have a relationship. We have a level of rapport that will support that type of silence. But in a work environment, in a corporate environment, and something like that, like you don't have that type of rapport. And so when you're silent with your team members or you're silent with your customers, they're going to start feeling like you don't care really mm. quickly. Mm. And and I want I want all of you guys who are listening to this, right? You, you, you men and women who are listening to this, who have someone who is called to you. Uh, you might be a pastor, preacher, teacher, you might be an entrepreneur, CEO, COO, whatever it is that you are. What is it that your silence is communicating to the people who are looking to you mm. and looking up to you? That is that is so valid and so invaluable. And so as you teach this lesson and as you as you as you share this some people would be listening to this and they would say but the reason that i'm silent is because i'm focused the mm. reason that i'm silent is because um i the only way that i know how to be efficient is to be quiet mm. so what do you say to those people how how do they um still function on their highest level while at the same time providing this full service to the people that they serve and who serve them that's a great question. And, and I, I teach my clients all the time when I coach people, one of, the, one of the things we get in trouble with is when we assume motivation. Mm. When we assume somebody's silent because they're complicit or they don't care or something like that. Maybe they're just a focused person, as you mentioned. But mm -hmm. the problem is maybe that's me. I'm the focused person who just doesn't tend to talk to a lot of people. I don't really get to determine what my silence means. Mm. That's interpreted by the other people the people who are around me, and they may never ask for clarification as to why I'm silent. I think what you can do if you're like in a cubicle farm with people or you're on a team with people and you can just say, I have my headphones in to help me focus. If you need to talk about anything, you come to, and there's nothing I'm working on that's more important than you needing something. So you come let me know, but I'm distracted. I, I'm the king of distraction, Maurice. Like I wrote my book in coffee shops because I have to be around people. But if the conversation at the next table was interesting, I'd have to put my AirPods in because they no cancel the noise because I'm distracted by the conversation. So, And I would want to interject. Like I would want to get involved in this conversation <laughs> with people I don't know. Like, you know, I'm that guy. But the AirPods would focus me. But I would still be around the hustle and the bustle of the people, which as an extrovert, I need. So telling people that these are just here for focus, but if you need something, man, all you got to do is let me know. And I'm here. You're giving people permission ahead of time to disturb you. Mm. Right? And if it becomes too much, then that's just a conversation you have with that person. Listen, man, I, I love talking to you, but I'm behind. I got to get some stuff done. You know, give me an hour and we'll connect for coffee. Give me two hours. I, growing up, Maurice, I don't know if you had timeouts like I did growing up. I, I got, I got, spanked more than one occasion. I've survived. I lived to tell the tale. I got timeouts a lot. And mm -hmm. in my day, the timeout was the worst punishment ever because in my bedroom was nothing but a bed and a window. Mm. There was no Xbox. There was no computer. There was no nothing. There was no mm -hmm. phone, right? He said Xbox. We know you didn't have an Xbox in your childhood, Scott. I had an Scott. Atari. I, I know. Atari. Tell the truth, Scott. Yeah. I already knew. I said that's the wrong era, Scott. I had an Atari, <laughs> but I, I wanted something your listeners would identify. And if I say Atari, they're like, what's that thing? But, but I thought it was a horrible punishment. And what I learned as a parent, Maurice, is that there are times where it's the only thing that keeps me from doing something really hurtful to my kids. Like mm. I call a timeout when I've had enough, not mm. when they've had enough. So mm. when they were little, I sent them to their room, you know, just go to your room, go to your room. And I will settle myself down for 20, 30 minutes. And more times than not, Maurice, I would go back to their room and apologize. And I bring this up in the work setting because sometimes we just need a timeout. Sometimes this person's on our last nerve. They've asked a ton of questions. You're like, man, you're needing a lot right now, and I don't have a lot right now. Give me an hour. And then in that hour, you walk, you take a walk, you listen to some music, you got something done on your to-do list, you accomplish a goal, and then your brain kind of settles down, and then you can go and have that conversation. Timeouts are really healthy. But the, the 
danger is a guy like me who doesn't like conflict or really don't like conflict, the timeout can go on indefinitely. And I can convince myself in that timeout, it's not that big a deal. That's it. You know, what they did, really not that big a deal. Like, I'll just let it go. I won't bring it up. And then the next time they do it, I don't start from zero. I start from about 20. That's it. Because I'm already mad, right? Because mm-hmm. you didn't fix this problem that I didn't tell you was a problem. And mm-hmm. somehow that becomes your fault, right? So the timeout has to be temporary and you have to set a time to come back. You leave a meeting really aggravated or really excited or something. And you're and they're like, hey, you want to talk about that thing? I do. Give me 15 minutes. Mm. And in that timeout, your brain settles down, your nervous system settles down, and you can have a better conversation. So I, I think that some some of my listeners today would really benefit from hearing you speak about a couple things. Mm-hmm. Because I know that when I talk about some of these same some of these same subjects, people are very quick to say, well, you know, you must be good at this. And it, it comes natural for you. That stuff doesn't come natural for me. Mm-hmm. And though you have said multiple times, I walk back in the room and apologize, which yeah. you're already saying you're not infallible and you make mistakes and you're imperfect. Yeah. But someone still has, is not really hearing that, even though you're saying it. Mm. So how have you really done? I mean, is all this natural to you? Is it natural for you to have such a kind heart? Is it natural for you to always be thinking about others? Um, was it natural for you to be a police officer who is white in a country where there's a lot of, there's been cultural dynamics of aggression and hostility and tension? Has all of this stuff been as easy as you make it sound when you speak with the gifts that God has given you? <laughs> uh no, there, there's plenty of wreckage, plenty of carnage behind me. I have hurt people. I have I've handled things poorly. But that's the beauty of being 48 years old is that mm. like you get to a point where you're like, okay, that doesn't work. And now that my oldest daughter is married and her and her husband are amazing, they've been married six months, like moving from dad to coach is hard. Moving from the coach to say, I don't think that's best, but you guys decide. Because it's not my call. I'm not your husband. Like you need to go to your husband first and talk about these this issue. And sometimes he comes to me because he doesn't have a father figure and he's like my son. And I'm I'm cool with that. Like I've never had a son before. The first son I got was 22. All the work was done. Like he's raised. I don't have to pay for his college. It's a good deal, right? So I'm happy about that. But I just moving from from dad to coach was a huge mm. transition. And, and we have to do that at, at, with the people we work with too. This, You asked, is this something innate in me? No, it's something I've honed over 48 years. Like There are definitely people who have hurt me uh, that have caused me to do things differently. And so we learn from that. I, I'm a big believer in there's a lot of things that happen to us we don't choose, but we can always choose what we do about that. We can choose to become a victim or we can choose to be better. And I will tell you, the times that the world has told me I've chosen poorly and I've learned otherwise have become the last few years of my life. I really feel like the most growth for me has been the last few years of my life. And, and I'll get I'll get real with you, Maurice. When uh, George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery happened, I was retired at the time. I was retired from the police department. What bothered me the most about George Floyd was the officer who stood by and did nothing. Mm. Because I felt like if I say nothing about this with the platform that I have, I'm that guy, right? Mm. I'm that guy that says this is wrong and I'm saying nothing. I'm not doing anything. And silence feels like you don't care, right? So I started scheduling coffee and dinner with friends of mine who didn't look like me right? I had coffee with my black friends. I went into their house and sat on their porch. And when I shared that stuff on my platforms, (laughs) I was told I shouldn't do that. I was told that was rude of me to go and seek out my black friends and have these conversations. And and I had never thought it to be rude, nor did they, interestingly enough. They were (laughs) like, thank you for having these conversations because we've never been a police officer. We Mm. can from each other. Like we didn't have each other's lenses, mm-hmm. beautiful conversations. We gave each other permission to say the wrong things in an effort to get to the right conclusion. Mm, say that one more time. Somebody needs that again. <laughs> we gave each other permission to say the wrong things in order to get to the right conclusion. These were mm-hmm. not acquaintances of mine. These were friends. 
that I could have a conversation with and that I could learn from. And when I shared that, I was told that that wasn't a good thing for me to do. And it, it really bothered me. And when I speak at these organizations, I'll, I'll bring this up. And I'll say, you need to be having these conversations if they're necessary, right? Because difficult conversations, the things that are easier to be silent about, if we go into those conversations, the other side is better. It's awkward. And you can say that in the beginning with a team member. You got to call in because they're not doing their job. You say, this is going to be awkward. But I want you to be successful. And in order to do that, we got to push through the awkward. There it is. And I can tell you at some of my presentations I have seen the feedback from people and two people that I know of have said this conversation could be offensive to our people of color that work here. Mm. And what bothers me the most is those were from other white people. <laughs> like, why can we not talk about this kind of stuff? My daughter is married to a black man. Like mm -hmm. this is a part of my family. I don't care. He's a man that loves her and loves God. Those are the requirements to marry my daughter. You right? said there's some requirements no, let's, a, and he fulfills them. It's that's a two, it. it's a two pronged list. You got to love on. God and you got to love my daughter. Other than that, I don't care. Right. Mm -hmm. That that's the end of the list. And so I guess my point Maurice is that I feel like these have been the healthiest conversations of my life mm. and people have told me I shouldn't have had them. Mm. And I think that's where we are because that's why these things are deteriorating, whatever that is. These things could be that thing at work that's just getting worse. Why is it getting worse? Because nobody's talking about it. Uh, mental health in the world today is a crisis. It's a crisis. And I have a presentation I do at organizations about my panic attacks in 2020 for the first time in my life. Police officer, big, tough, macho guy having panic attacks, right? Wow. This is something we have to talk about. And I share it from stage. And my wife and I had a conversation before I did this. She goes, do we really want to be the guy who talks openly about their mental health struggles? I'm like, we have to. We have to because on the other side of awkward conversations is healing. And when I have brought those topics to organizations, to conferences, to businesses, the people that have lined up and said, you just told my story. Mm. You just gave me permission to seek out the employee assistance program. Yes. To do this, to get the help train rolling. Because Maurice, I have been in schools post-student suicide. And it's horrible. I would much rather be in there pre-crisis to say, you know what? We're all dealing with mental health struggles. But there is another side. There's an end to that. It is not a for the rest of your life thing. It is a season that we've gotten really good at helping people through if you just let us know it's going on. Scott, I'm a little mad at you right now <clears throat> because <laughs> I was just about to start the wrap up process and you said something and now I have to ask you a question about what you said Dude. because it was so good. Dude. And it and I I'm almost doing a little bit of a pivot but it's needed. Okay. You said my wife and I had a conversation and she said, "Do we really want to be the guy that?" Yeah. There was so much in that statement. <laughs> Right. Because, you know, we, we understand these wedding vows that two become one. Mm. Right. There are some marriages where the people look at each other and they go, you do what you want. It's on you. Yeah. <laughs> and then there are some marriages where the, the, the husband and the wife, they look at one another and the wife says to the husband or the husband says to the wife, the decision that you make will affect both of us. Mm hmm. So let's make sure we both have some stock in the game yes. and let's make sure that we want to be that man or that woman as we move forward. Yes. There was so much in that statement and I didn't want to pass over it too fast. So I, I don't want to make you tell us, you know, all of the, you know, the journey of your marriage, but I want to, I want to ask you this. What is the, how did you and your wife get to that place where you, where you really had each other's back on that level? Like, how, how does a couple get there? I know that, you yeah. know, there's all these things that people want to go to you for, and they want to bring you in already because <laughs> they've been listening to this inter interview to, to have you speak to their employees or to speak to their upper management. But some yeah. of them also have broken relationships and broken marriages. Right. They need this. Right. I, I think, you know, for me, Maurice, it, it goes way back. Like, my dad's dad left my grandma with five kids, like divorced my grandma with five kids. He was a pastor of his church and he got had a thing with his secretary and, and they got married and lived happily ever after. My dad left my mom with three boys for somebody he met at work. 
You know, it's, I saw a pattern developing. And so I, I guess what I, I always say, you know, like I said, you can't choose what happens to you, but you can choose what you do about it. So when I was in college, Maurice, if I went out on date one with somebody, I couldn't go out with somebody number two until I knew there was not going to be a date number two with this first one. Not that there was a lot of people lined up, you know, not to make it sound that way, but my brain is... is wait, wait, did you just flex? No. Did you just flex real quick? There was he not said, a lot of people. I, I heard not that there wasn't a lot. I, it no, sounded like a soft flex. there was. Sorry. I, you know, it was not a flex. Trust me. <laughs> I, uh, and so you know, my brain is wired for that. Like, this is going to be forever. And my wife and I had this conversation. And we were married about eight years when we got involved teaching the pre-marriage class at our church. So engaged couples, you know, this is what we found that works. This is what we found that doesn't work. You know, those type of things we're sharing because there's something fun about being married for a lot of years and then hanging out with people who are still like, you hang up first. No, you hang up first. Like they're in that stage of life where they just, the rose colored glasses. And as we're telling them, Hey, you know, make sure you're having date night. We drive home, my wife and I would be like, we should probably do that more. That thing we're teaching people, we, <laughs> we should, should probably, probably do that practice more. Right? What we're teaching. Yeah. So it was very convicting to us. And so it's always been a focus. We're just a couple of months from being empty nesters, like which has been one of the hardest struggles of our marriage. We still love each other and love each other's company. Mm-hmm. But my wife's lifetime goal has been to raise productive children. Mm-hmm. And when your youngest reaches the age of 18, you start thinking, now what? Now what? Now what do I do? What do you have mm-hmm. for me, God? Like what's what's next for me? And so mm-hmm. we have always realized that our decisions affect probably those around us more than they do us. You know, if I blow up my life, that carnage gets on everybody I love. Um, I haven't done this live on air <clears throat> or live while recording, but I'm going to say your wife has an entire ministry in her. Um, and when she is trying to figure out what is next, she has to remember that her voice um, has a lot of influence um, in circles. And some of the circles are circles she doesn't even walk in physically. Mm-hmm. So in other words, people have watched her in the way she has parented and watched her in the way that she has interacted with you and weren't interacted with the community. Mm-hmm. And so I think I'm just speaking prophetically right now. So mm-hmm. um, what I can see is that your wife... Um, the lessons that she's poured into her children and poured into you, she's meant to pour into other people so that they can pour it into their children. And so there's so much ministry in her. Mm. Um, And when she finds that, when she sees that and discovers that, then the two of you can speak together. Then the two of you can can go to a place and both speak on a conference. There's Mm. so much power in that. Yeah. I love that. I love that. We we have picked around the idea of a marriage conference before, uh, but we haven't haven't pulled the trigger on it. So that's something that that you know we're we're considering that. So I appreciate those words, and I would mm. let her know that. Mm-hmm. I love it so much. Well, you know, I I hope um, for those who have been listening today or watching today, however it is that you guys have been catching this, um, that this has been something that has blessed you. You heard a little bit of his struggles more actually at the end of the interview than at the beginning. But I hope that one thing you've seen throughout this or heard throughout this is transparency, integrity, and character. Those are three things that I think of when I think of Scott, and I really hope that you all literally go out and buy this book, Silence Kills. I hope that you consider having him to speak um, for your corporation, for your school, um, because I think that his message is one that is spirit-led, that God has has placed this man on the earth at such a time as this um, to make an impact and a difference. Um, And I hope that today's podcast and the podcast in general is making a difference to you. If it is, I hope that you will share today's episode. I hope that you subscribe um, to our podcast, whether you're uh, wherever it is that you're listening, subscribe there, uh, subscribe on our YouTube, subscribe on every platform that we that we show up on. And if you haven't yet, go back to some of our previous episodes, listen, leave comments, and let us know who else you would like to see us interview in the future. So Scott, as we wrap things up today, one more question that I have for you. I really, I have two, but one major one. So one thing that I ask every guest is this. I want you to pretend um, that a hundred years from now, um, a, a person walks into a museum and it is a museum of the, of the past. And they walk into a section of the museum that is labeled hope. 
And within that, that museum, there are time capsules. And so they open up one of the time capsules and it is the time capsule of Scott Harvey. And they see a book there and they see a badge there and they say, see a, a dare ribbon. I don't know what it is. You know, they see some things that are artifacts of your journey. They then see a, a little screen and they have this clip. And this is what you leave as your lasting mark on the world for what you have to say about hope. What would you share with that individual? That's a great question and uh, an on the feet question. And I will say hope is the hope for what you, or the, the belief in what you don't see. That's what hope is. And there's a lot of things we don't see. I don't see God, but I see the effects of God. Just like I don't see the wind, I see the effects of the wind. I hope that my life resonates with other people and empowers them to share their hope. Because I don't need more people doing Scott Harvey. I need people doing who God created them to be. And I believe one of my purposes is to empower people by being my authentic self, to empower people to be their authentic self. Because the verse that always gets me, and I can't quote it for you for sure, is you know, always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have when you're asked. Mm. And I believe if I'm not being asked, it's because I don't look any different than the rest of the world. So I want to live my life in an authentic way in a world that values authenticity, but doesn't practice it. And I hope that's what sets me apart from the rest of the people. Thank you so much for that answer. And so somebody who wants to find you, they want to book you, they want to get your book. What is the easiest way for someone to find you online? Easiest place is speakingofharvey.com. There's links to all of my social media channels. There's a link to my book. There's a link to all the things that I produce go through that site. And there's a contact Scott button and reach out. We can have a free talk about what it looks like to bring me into your organization, to talk to your business, your church, your youth group, whatever it looks like. Let's have a free conversation and see how I can help. Well, I hope you guys will take advantage of that. A free conversation. Not a lot of individuals do that when they're on a, a level like where Scott is. And so I hope you guys will take advantage of not only the wisdom from today and the lessons from today, but also, as if you can't tell, he has so much more to offer. And I hope that today, um, for everyone who's listening or watching today, was, uh, was a reminder of how much you have to offer as well. Sometimes you will find out how much you really have to give after a pivot, after a change, after a transformation that is required in life. But I hope today was a reminder that it's all possible, especially when you lean on a power that is greater than you. So Scott, I just thank you so much for joining me today. This has really been a pleasure. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. Yes, you are so welcome. Uh, and I want to give a shout out also to Everybody Wins, excuse me, Everyone Wins Together Productions. Everyone Wins Together Productions is a media production company whose mission is to curate content for the creator and produce experiences in music, media, and live production. Email jason at ewtproductions.com to get started with your podcast, music for your digital content, or development for your music and production teams in your ministry. You can also follow EWT Productions on social media so you can get updates on everything they have going on. And so for today, I am signing off. This is Maurice F. Martin, and I just thank you for joining us for another episode of Hope Rising, where those who inspire go for inspiration and the unfulfilled go to find fulfillment. <music>